Take a network break. Get your mandatory minimum of pumpkin spice and join us as we traipse through this week's tech news. We've got multiple security stories, an IPv4 scam, new products from Prosimo and Juniper, and more IT news. We're sponsored today by Backbox. Backbox is the network automation platform for configuration management, device backups, and OS upgrades. It's now adding network vulnerability management. This new capability is purpose-built for network teams to quickly discover and prioritize network OS vulnerabilities and then reliably automate patching and upgrades. You can find out more at backbox.com slash packet pushers. And on today's Tech Byte, sponsored by Nokia, we're going to talk about how Nokia has developed a chat GPT-based application that runs on its SR Linux network OS. Network engineers can use this app to query about network state, ask troubleshooting questions, check configs, search logs, and quickly sort through reams of documentation. So stick around. You're going to want to hear that one. It's kind of cool, that demo, if you actually listen to them. But if you also watch the demo, we did a demo bytes on the YouTube Packet Pushers YouTube mm-hmm. channel. And they demonstrated that. And it's kind of cool because, uh, you know, when you start with a vendor and the CLI is kind of a problem, what they're showing here is that you could, using ChatGPT to say, show me all the VGP neighbors for this router. And it will go off and work out what commands it needs to do and then type them in and then put them out. And then you can say, like, you can extend the 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 prompt there to ChatGPT and say, give me a table of that. And it'll print out a little table for you. Mm-hmm. Quite amazing. It's quite interesting to, it. I think, as something that you would do, I'm not sure that it would be something that everybody wants to do, but as an example of, you know, what AI can do, it might actually help you understand what AI might be doing for you in the future. So instead of proprietary CLIs, we might end up with a sort of an AI there generating, taking your requests and just doing them for you. So instead of having a CLI do it, just use an AI LLM. Interesting. Right. And I like that it's also kind of constrained in its outlook. It's not trying to automate your entire data center or anything. It's just uh, using ChatGPT to look at your actual network state and also all of Nokia's network documentation. So it's a nice bounded problem that I think is suitable for AI in that you can kind of trust the result it's giving you back because it understands the context. And it's also not just out scraping whatever some rando has written on the internet about BGP. So it's a, a nice constrained environment to, to keep the results accurate. Yeah, it just it's an interesting demo of what like what, what a practical use for an LLM, an AI LLM, large language model can do. There are many types of AIs, and LLM is one of them. So it's interesting, just and might spark some ideas in in what you could do if you had what you could use something like ChatGPT or one of the other LLMs for in uh, other places in your infrastructure or what you think. Uh, it struck me as to what the future might look for. What you know, what are we going to see from future AI implementations in network operations? That's what I thought. Yeah, so you can listen to the the Tech Bytes or go check out uh, the video on Packet Pushers. I just search for Nokia ChatGPT if you want to check it out. It's interesting. All right, let's get into the news. Uh, a quick update on that major Cisco vulnerability we talked about last week affecting iOS XE network OSs. Uh, Cisco has released software updates. It says it addresses the issue. I know patching is a pain and potentially disruptive, uh, but there are active exploits against these vulnerabilities. So it's kind of a pick your poison, I think. Yeah, this is uh, reasonably big. I think the problem now is we talked about the vulnerability last week. Um, you know, it's a vulnerability in the management interface. If you'd exposed it to the internet, people can go straight in. And then what the the, the attackers have been doing is leaving an implant behind, uh, which allows them to just send a string to the router, and then you've instantly got escalated privilege again. But what they're also doing is putting in their own usernames and passwords at access level 15, so you've got full access. Uh, what's also been happening is that since the original uh, announcement around the vulnerability is that these vulnerable devices started disappearing from the internet. 
two per- there's a few things you could say about this one is maybe people are out there fixing them <laughs> you know right. taking them off the internet now that there's Hopefully. a vulnerability around these ios xe devices yeah. uh, but also it could be the point that if you're an attacker you don't want somebody else coming in and uh, taking out your implant so maybe they're pulling up the ladder behind them and closing off access and leaving the implant in place i should note that cisco says the implant doesn't survive a reboot According to Cisco, it took them several days to come out and say that. Uh, the patch took several days for Cisco to come out, which is really not an acceptable behavior for iOS XE devices. Um, and, you know, Cisco continues to fail to have good security practices around its management interfaces. So, don't you know, yes, it's one thing to say, don't put your management interface on the internet. It's also, we should be able to, because they should be secure against this type of thing as well. Yeah. Links in the show notes if you want to go get that patch. Uh, moving on, Prosimo, they make software for multi-cloud networking. They've announced a new feature that can analyze your network flows in public clouds by accounts, regions, and clouds, and then provide recommendations to save on cloud networking costs. It can also identify networking costs associated with applications. If you want to like provide a chargeback function to application owners or business units, this feature is called Cost360. It's available for no charge if you're already a Prosimo customer. So this feature to me is exactly what customers are saying to the vendors and saying, sure, I want to go into the multi-cloud, but can you help me with the costs of this? How do I track the costs? And customers should be doing this themselves by talking directly to AWS or Google Cloud or you know Azure or whatever. Um, and because Prosimo uses other people's clouds to transport data around and to the purpose there is to connect to them, it does make sense for them to, you know, they are the, probably talking to customers and customers are saying, how can you help me with this problem? Mm-hmm. And if they can offer that to you, well, then they're well-placed to do that. And I think we've seen other multi-cloud networking companies do something similar. Didn't have time to go and double-check that, but I believe that this is sort of like a, a good feature for network as a service multi-cloud networking companies to have. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of folks are concerned about cloud costs. Executives are realizing how expensive cloud can be. And so there's pressure to figure out, one, how much the cloud is costing, and then two, figure out how to allocate those costs. So a tool like this can be useful for network engineers to take back to the business and say, yeah, here's what we're spending. How do you feel about that? And then, then get recommendations from the system uh, on how to make some savings. I also like that Cost360 can account for like policy-based requirements. Uh, so for things like security, compliance, or performance. So it's said you know prosimo says they aren't going to recommend make a recommendation that could you know remove a security control that could that should be there based on policy so i think that's also a smart use of the system it's not just let's get the cost down it's let's get the cost down but also keep whatever policy or compliance requirements you have in place that's i think pretty smart yeah, it does sound pretty smart i mean look anything that stops you wasting your life on licensing and cost analysis and gets you to do real real technology that's a feature so i'm into this i'm into this yeah All right, links in the show notes. Uh, And sticking with cloud networking, Juniper Networks has announced an integration with Juniper's SD-WAN product and AWS's CloudWAN. AWS CloudWAN essentially lets you use the AWS network backbone as a private WAN. Customers can connect to that WAN via third-party SD-WANs or edge routers. Uh, So this means if you're a Juniper SD-WAN customer, you can add AWS CloudWAN as a middle mile option. Yeah, so this idea of using AWS's network you know, it's backbone network between its data centers as a network and, you know, to bypass telcos or to bypass the public internet. That's been around for, I want to say, 10 years now. We've seen any number of SD-WAN providers or what we now call SD-WAN providers say, why don't we just use those networks as backbones? And what you do is send the traffic into our network. And from there, we'll we'll transport it over the, the AWS backbone. Same for Azure, same for Google. Any number of SD-WAN companies have been doing this. What AWS has decided is they don't want other people making all the money. So they want to want to offer that as a, as a feature that you can use directly. Um, I should note that Juniper has announced that they've jumped right onto this and they're already integrating with this. 
Yeah, uh, and just so you know, Juniper acquired its SD WAN from 128 Technology. That's a startup, and they, as a startup, made a huge deal about not using tunnels uh, in in its uh, forwarding. So if that's an issue for you, if you know, because tunnels can add a little overhead, uh, you might want to check that out. Yeah, I think it's it's super interesting because the the Juniper SD WAN functionality, because it doesn't encapsulate or tunnel. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that their SSR can do. Now, keep in mind, the purpose of a tunnel is so that you know the source and the destination inside of the software-defined tool that configures the tunnel, right? Mm -hmm. So what Juniper's uh, 128 technology acquisition did was smart session routing. It says, if I send an encrypted payload from this port on this IP address to this port on this IP address, I know who it is. Right. right, it's all rather yep. obvious. You don't need to encapsulate. So the advantage there is that they get significant cost savings because they're not wasting headers, you know, like Ethernet inside of IP, inside of IP, inside of you know whatever. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot more efficiency. And they're claiming here thirty to fifty percent egress cost savings with a tunnel-free architecture. And they're saying that because the cost of cloud egress is so high, if you can not encapsulate, you can actually make significant savings. They're also saying it's a zero trust model, so you get equal, you know, better improvements around the, the security of it. They get increased throughput because you're getting um, no encapsulation. You can get to the full packet size. You don't have to worry about MTUs. You can use up more of the MTU for actual payload. And so that means that you're the larger packet size, less backwards and forwards, so less response, less, less uh, you know, backwards and forwards in the handshake. Day. You know, I, did, I sent this data. Did you get it? Yes, sent you data. So you get much faster throughput. And then, of course, uh, Juniper wants to brag about missed AI because they're mystifying, as they talked about reading their financial results, they talk about mystifying everything, which is, mm -hmm. oh, that's kind of cool. It's a good joke to put onto an analyst called kind of funny. Yeah. But yeah. they are bringing missed AI to session smart routing, um, making it easier to operate that. So I think that's cool. I think this is quite quite smart from Juniper. Um, I would have some concerns about why is it taking them so long. It's been, what, two or three years since 128 was acquired? Yes, I, Juniper was, you know, late to the SD-WAN market, um, and 128 was one of the last independent standing. So, uh, but they seem to have a nice relationship with Juniper. Um, but yeah, Juniper was late to SD-WAN, and I think they're trying to make up for it here. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it does fit very tidily in with AWS's Cloud WAN. So basically, Juniper SSR at the edge, run it into AWS's Cloud WAN, boom, you've got an instant backbone. You don't actually, for companies who've got a big AWS commitment, you don't have to go to a third party to do, do that. If you if that's what you want, if you're trying to use a, you know, offload from the internet and go into a, a high performance cloud backbone like AWS, a lot of other, you know, SD WAN companies do that. They offer that as a value added service. But if you want to do it direct with AWS, this is a good way to do it. And you are going to need a VPC or transit gateway uh, with Amazon with AWS, of course, to get access to cloud WAN. And then you may also need uh, a virtual instance of the uh, the SSR SD WAN uh, gateway uh, from Juniper to get there. But definitely, that's something to double check. But keep that in mind as you think about mm -hmm. this. All right, moving on. Uh, the CEO of a company called Micfo has been sentenced to five years in prison for a wire fraud scheme to acquire IPv4 addresses under false pretenses and then resell those addresses on the public market. Uh, those IPv4 addresses are worth millions of dollars. Federal prosecutors say the CEO set up shell companies with fake identities to get IPv4 addresses from Aaron. That's the American Registry for Internet Numbers, the RIR for the US and uh, the Caribbean. He then resold them to VPN providers and others. Uh, the CEO was originally sued by Aaron back in 2018, where he settled with the organization, but federal prosecutors caught wind of the suit and decided they could bring uh, wire fraud charges, which they did, and he is now going to jail. Yeah, there's a couple of different ways to look at this. Obviously, you know, someone who's creating hundreds of shell companies to receive IP address allocations should be visible to Aaron, and it took them several years. I believe he started in 2012, 
and it took them six years before they finally, you know, stopped the process um, and when the guy settled. I don't think that's enough. I think you really did need a criminal investigation, mm-hmm. and I suspect there was plenty of people inside of the industry who knew exactly what this guy was doing. You know, they'd be going like, "How? Do we, where do these IP addresses come from? And it would have been one of those things that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. And this highlights to me the dysfunctionality of ICANN and the NICs. Like Aaron is supposed to supervise the IP address allocation. That's its whole reason to try, right? It doesn't, that's what it exists for. Right. And they go around bragging how vital names and addresses are to businesses and, but they're clearly failing to protect their own processes. And I'm sort of being hypercritical here, but if you are going to say that you're the custodian of these things and then somebody commits this sort of abuse of the process for multiple years, I mean, look at what happened to Afrinic. We've talked about that in other shows. Mm-hmm. You know, that that organization's dysfunctionality extended. And now I see ICANN's going out there and saying, oh, this shows the robustness of our procedures. I mean, what? The 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 collapse of Afrinic happened over a decade. It was obviously going to happen when you dig into what actually happened there. And yet it completely failed and now it's, the whole the whole Afrinic IP addresses have been stolen. Like millions of ten million IP addresses have fundamentally been taken from the Afrinic allocation and given to a private individual who's now out there trying to to rent them to people, saying, "I want you to rent these IP addresses from you." For you know, this person's going to make hundreds of millions of dollars out of that process. You can't brag that you're a success, and this is to me is a sign of the failure of ICANN and Aaron and what they're not doing right. My impression is the RIR sort of came out of the the early days of the internet when it was in some ways still sort of collegial and based on relationships and and who you knew and sort of academic focus and about openness and sharing and sort of a you know handshake trust and that's clearly not the environment we're operating in anymore particularly as IPv4 addresses become increasingly valuable because there's essentially out of uh, address space for v4 and uh, IPv6 uptake is so slow uh, they are now in fact dealing with a commodity that is quite valuable so I think they do need to tighten up their processes to keep an eye out for stuff like this. Yeah, like, you know, we're talking about AWS is now able to make, what, $2 billion a year out of the IP for address portfolio that it's got, right? Yeah. So if you're a bunch of amateur, if you want to say, oh, but we're an amateur. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So if you want to stand there and say, oh, but we're a bunch of amateurs doing nice things for people, that's not going to fly in 2023. Sorry. Yeah, it, this wasn't a wake-up call for the RIRs. It should be so. Yeah. But uh, Brian Krebs has a, a great story on it. If you want to read up on it, in the if show I'm going to bet, bet my business and on IP addresses, I want to know that. Do you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> Somebody's watching the store. Exactly. Yeah. Very much. Yes. <laughs> All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Backbox. The Backbox network automation platform is introducing its newest feature, Network Vulnerability Managers. The number of critical vulnerabilities affecting network equipment goes up every year. Engineers have to patch and upgrade faster and more frequently, and manual vulnerability management, meaning that Excel spreadsheet or the Google Doc you're trying to keep updated, that doesn't cut it anymore. Backbox now combines network automation and network vulnerability management in a single platform. It's purpose-built for network teams to help you easily discover and prioritize network OS vulnerabilities according to risk, and then automatically remediate them. Backbox supports more than 180 vendors and thousands of devices, including switches, routers, firewalls, load balancers, APs, and more. Find out how you can better automate and protect your network with Backbox. Get all the details at backbox.com slash packetpushers. That's backbox.com slash packetpushers. And we thank Backbox for being a sponsor. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, so the password manager one password has confirmed that it was the target of an attempted intrusion as attackers tried to leverage a compromise of Okta, which provides identity management services to one password and many others. One password says it spotted the attempted intrusion after detecting suspicious activity on the Okta instance that manages employee facing applications. One password said in a statement, quote, we immediately terminated the activity, investigated and found no compromise of user, user data or other sensitive systems, either employee facing or user facing, end quote. Not exactly, Drew. As it turns out, uh, I was over reading a, some, a blog post from a security professional, mm-hmm. and what he said was, Okta was notified two weeks earlier by the security firm Beyond Trust that they had stopped an attacker who was using a cookie that seemed to come from Okta's support system. Mm-hmm. Okta didn't seem to take them seriously. Then one day before Okta admitted to the breach, Cloudflare also detected a similar instance, and as one password was already working with Okta to determine the cause of, of a break-in attempt using Okta's system into one password where Okta missed certain activity logs related to the 1Passwords case. So we're actually looking at a systemic failure of attention to detail, security, like Okta didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want to know that. Keep in mind, the thing here is that Okta was also breached in January 2022 and again in March 2022. Mm -hmm. And so this is the third time that they've had a significant breach where people were able to use Okta. And in this case, one time before, somebody did it by – hacking a, a support person, like getting the login of a support person, presumably mm-hmm. by ringing them up and asking them for it or convincing them in some way to get their login to Okta. Mm-hmm. In every single one of those, they've denied that it's a problem and nothing was stolen and it's not us, it's not our fault, it's just one of those things. And so I, I, I'm having a real problem here. The supply chain attack here that was, they compromised the account of someone in support. They used this account to find what was called a HAR file, H-A-R, which is when you're having a problems with an Okta thing, you click the client and it will upload a HAR file to support and they can look at what was being done to diagnose where the problem was. Inside of that HAR is a actual key exchange, so key material or state cookie. So once you successfully log in, it loads a cookie into the browser to say here I am or some cookie into the client or whatever. And so what these people were able to do is then say, oh, well, now I've got – I can get these HAR files from from Okta support. Now I can impersonate the people. <laughs> and mm-hmm. boom, I'm in. I'm into 1Password. I'm into Cloudflare. I'm into a whole pile of other people. And when these people went back to them and said to Okta, you've got a problem, Okta deny, didn't deny it, but they didn't take it very seriously – And the reading between the lines here, it's like they didn't want to accept that they'd been breached again and didn't want to say it out loud. Mm -hmm. Uh, That didn't work because both Cloudflare and OnePassword got very, very loud about it, almost immediately going public. And now Okta's looking pretty stupid at this point. It it really is. Uh, Okta has acknowledged that attackers leverage a stolen credential to get access to Okta's support case management system. The company says the support case management system is entirely separate from its production Okta service, which hasn't been compromised. I guess they would want you to know that, but it doesn't look good for Okta. Uh, And we're also talking about layers of dependency here. Uh, One domino fell, luckily more didn't. Uh, I think that's the risk of these kind of services. Uh, Identity management, password management, they are prime targets for attackers because that's where the credentials are. Uh, Like, you know, that... Crook Willie Sutton, they asked him, why do you rob banks? And he said, that's where the money is. So these are prime (laughs) targets for attackers. Yeah. If you're going to be a prime, you know, if you're going to be a zero trust identity management type organization, you have to be better than everyone. Right. And in this case, Cloudflare and 1Password are showing Okta up as, you know, borderline, you know, not able to do this effectively. Um, Now, I think the key takeaway here is one, you know, if you're 1Password or Cloudflare, they're not trusting Okta. They have tools in place to watch for this, right? (laughs) Which is kind of not the point of outsourcing, right? The reason that you outsource is so that you don't have to. So 
Um, now, while right. it's convenient that one password in Cloudflare can blame Okta because it's not our fault, it was Okta's fault. Uh, don't don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's I mean, also the, true. The yeah. lesson is trust no one because everybody makes yeah. mistakes. So yeah. yeah. Uh, notably, Octa's share price fell two billion dollars on the market this week as a result of this. I think the fact, I think it's becoming sort of recognised that Octa is systemically not a good place to be, and it's entirely likely that Octa is going to look up like a solar winds, and then there'll be this gradual fall off as people turn away to something else to get away from Octa. So, uh, I think you know the days of security doesn't matter. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, their share price fell from eighty eight dollars to sixty seven dollars. So that's a big drop. Right, that's a thirty percent drop. As and uh, it's not showing any signs of slowing down. It's not even leveling out yet. So there is a penalty to be paid these days in this particular part of the business. People do care eventually, I guess. I mean, they should. Uh, I guess we'll see though. Like Solar Winds, I think Okta will probably get through this and come out the other side. One because you know identity management is tricky. This kind of product is very sticky. Uh, switching would be a huge pain for a lot of customers. So I'm sure Okta is on the phone with big customers, doing a lot of handholding and promises and so on to keep them on their side of the fence. I, we'll see if uh, security actually matters in this case. Yeah, I agree. Turning away from them would be hard, but I suspect that customers who are looking for new, who are entering into this, mm -hmm. Okta won't be on the front foot. And should it's not, not be on the short list at this case. It won't, yeah. probably won't make the short list or it'll have a negative rating on the short list. But, you know, yes, it is a very substantial company, but... You know, SolarWinds was a substantial company, and now there's rumors of them trying to sell themselves because the brand is so damaged. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll put it on the spreadsheet and take a look in a year or so. Yeah. All right, a quick note uh, about Fortinet. They have announced a new 40 SASE security appliance. The hardware appliance is the Fortigate 120G. It comes with Fortinet's custom security ASIC and promises firewall performance of 39 gigabits per second, IPsec VPN throughput of 35 gigabits per second, and also includes threat detection, SSL inspection, and other features. Uh, you can run security services locally on the device or direct traffic to Fortinet SASE cloud-based security services. Uh, other news for Fortinet, uh, they've now got more than 100 points of presence for their SAS cloud services globally. Now, those points of presence matter because you want to do a lot of that at the edge of the network. You want to do the inspection and threat analysis as close to the traffic as possible so that you can route us for the short. You don't want to be, you know, tromboning that traffic from, you know, Australia to the US for inspection and then back to Australia because right. you're going to some local pop inside of, right. you know, Microsoft Teams or whatever. Um, and you just can't be sure. So you want a lot of pop. So the fact that Fortinet is still building out that infrastructure, 100 doesn't sound like a lot. So I, I think there should be more. Um, it's certainly a good number, but I think given the size of Fortinet and the capacity for its SASE to grow, I'd, I'd expect to see that continued investment in that over time. So make sure you ask them about that question. I think the other thing about Fortinet is that generally it's probably one of the highest performing SASE. That this ability to do 39 gigs of firewalling and 35 gigs of IPsec, if that's your thing, the, the capability for Fortinet to use hardware acceleration does set them apart from some of its competitors. Well, that's locally on the box, those throughput numbers. I don't know what they would promise uh, in the cloud, um, but yes, they mm -hmm. are making custom ASICs uh, for their uh, hardware appliances. Yeah, I mean, that's just a lot, like 3 million concurrent sessions in your SASE. That sounds, you know, in your firewalls, like SASE, that sounds, uh, that's sounds a very big, big branch. You know, yes. <laughs> that's a big branch. That sounds like a conference, like a good sized conference. You could put one of the, a couple of those in and be <laughs> be happy that you've got an actor, you know, and they're talking. I mean, the, the performance is always limited. Each one of the chips has its own performance capability. So you do have to take that into, you know, sit down with the documentation and work out where the performance happens right. and where the hits are when you start stacking inspections on top of VPNs on top of whatever. But, you know, these, these numbers are, you know, definitely 
better than or comparable to any of the competitors, which is what they list out here, even though they say they, you know, but the price point is excessive. Like they're saying 3 million concurrent sessions, whereas the industry average is 55,000. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, you know, for some definition of concurrent sessions, you'd have to dig into that. I'm, I'm not going to give 40 get a, a total pass here, but yeah, the right. performance here is way, way in excess of, of most of the others. We always hand out the grains of salt uh, with these, with these new stories. Yeah, well, you know, hardware's always got its own limitations. It goes like hell when it does what the hardware does, but when you fall outside the envelope, things right. come a bit wrong. Yeah, so yeah. you, you always got to do your homework. All right, moving on, uh, Cisco Investments, that's the investment arm of Cisco System, has joined a funding round for a quantum networking startup called Illyrio Quantum. While the full amount of Cisco Investments was not disclosed, it can't have been much because Illyrio has raised a total of $3 million uh, across three funding rounds. That's according to Crunchbase. Yeah, small company. Uh, quantum networking has multiple features, key distribution, high accuracy clock synchronization. Uh, you can use quantum networking to detect, to treat your existing cable infrastructure as sensors. So if you want to detect vibration or breaches, you know, where somebody cuts the cable and tries to tap into it and things like that, uh, as well as for secure communication. So if you're using quantum as a very low bandwidth networking capability, um, you can do that. Uh, this is becoming very popular. We're seeing a lot of, uh, I see a lot of, well, smoke. It's not too much serious money going into it, but there's a lot happening in this space. Uh, so it wouldn't be surprising to see Cisco getting in there. Um, you know, Cisco is a risk-averse company. It's not going to invest in doing quantum networking using its own headcount. It only enters a market when it's mature and the leaders have been established and then they'll deploy their capital to buy that business and then add it onto their existing portfolio or add it onto the shelf. If you want quantum, you can buy a new box. Um, if you don't, you know, Cisco has the Cisco investments. You can actually go to their website, by the way, if you're in, in remotely interested, ciscoinvestments.com. Uh, and if you actually go down there and see the companies, it has literal hundreds of companies that it's already mm -hmm. invested in. You can see the mm -hmm. portfolio of company. Uh, and I think Cisco is using this to, to see inside of markets, emerging markets and emerging industries. So, you know, they get to put people on the executive team or on the board and they can look at quantum and say, oh, quantum is now big. And that person becomes an expert in quantum. And then they know they can then bring that person up to the executive at Cisco and start talking intelligently about, you know, without having to go out to an external consulting. I mean, having Cisco investments is probably cheaper than hiring McKinsey, you know, <laughs> to give you a market analysis or whatever. So having somebody on uh, the board, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what right. Yeah, that's right. So Alironet talks about how to all emulate pilot and deploy entanglement-based quantum networks that are capable of, you know, secure computing, all those other things. They claim they're leading the charge, blah, 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 all the things that you'd expect them to say. The question is really when does quantum networking become a large enough thing for Cisco to acquire a business and then introduce the public to its portfolio? So we'll see. Yeah, my takeaway is that uh, a paltry investment like this means that Cisco is just dipping a toe in it. This is not a, a high stakes. We're getting early in on this ground. Uh, to my mind, quantum networking is really just existing right now in the realm of uh, academic researchers and maybe some of the uh, more well-funded three-letter government agencies. There's actual deployments? Yeah, there's actual deployments and there are some services, you know, rather... I'm never quite sure if they're actual money-making things or they're just, uh -huh. you know, headline products, but I believe there are certain... Uh, you know, companies who provide internet exchange points and, you know, data center backbones and that sort of stuff. Okay. You know, companies like Equinox are offering services in that space. Well, now, whether they're being taken up or not, I don't know. But um, one thing is that we're still seeing is that quantum computing in particular does herald potentially the end of crypto if they can 
you know, even if they start to introduce ways to faster roll over those algorithms. And so this week, somebody did introduce a thousand bit quantum computer or a thousand qubit quantum computer, which would definitely be able to crack just about all the crypto algorithms around crypto, crypto chain technology or crypto blockchains. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be interesting to see how, whether blockchains can survive that insult, whether they can start to innovate fast enough uh, to be actually be able to, you know, can their software update to new algorithms faster or do we actually start to see more exploits and less confidence in that thing but this is i think for for us quantum networking is completely different to quantum computing not the same <laughs> yeah in the same way that different problems yeah. yeah yeah quantum networking doesn't necessarily mean quantum computing the two are quite separated one doesn't lead to the other right so we'll see well you know i haven't talked about it up until now because i don't think it's a real thing for for the, for the foreseeable future so it's on the spreadsheet i guess yeah, for sure. I think for folks listening, it's a, a curiosity, a something maybe to just to investigate out of your own personal interest, not anything you will have to make a decision about anytime soon. <laughs> not yet. Um, but And speaking of that, uh, Greg, you and Ethan did actually uh, do a heavy networking, future of networking with a scientist, an academic researcher working on uh, um, quantum networking. So that's in the show notes if you want to go check out that episode. Well, it was called Quantum Communications back then. Now it's called Quantum right. Networking. <laughs> yeah, have a listen to that if you want to dig into what can be done and what can't be done and try and get your head around about what's actually happening in there. It kind of boggles my mind, to be honest, but still. It is, it is quite boggling. Uh, revenues for merchant-built DPUs and IPUs have more than tripled in the past year. That's according to a research report from Crahan Research. That growth uh, is being led by Intel's IPUs or infrastructure processing units, thanks to deployments of Intel IPUs in Google's public cloud infrastructure. Uh, I will say that this growth is starting from nearly zero, uh, but that ramp up has that sort of steep upward line that I think executives investors like to see. Yeah, it's a little bit difficult to understand this report. It doesn't. It's only a two pager, and it's released publicly, so it's not the whole story, and that's perfectly fine. This person should not be, you know, the the that Crehan as an analyst doesn't have to research it, release everything. But so you can have a discussion around what defines a smart NIC, and, and he says in his chart, smart NICs including DPUs and IPUs versus foundational performance NICs. Is he saying that DPUs now consist of twenty five percent of total Ethernet? Nick revenue inside of servers. I I think that's okay. I think that's an acceptable if you accept that Google is putting an IPU inside of every one of its servers. AWS is obviously doing the same thing. We know that they've already been developing their DPU type technology for a very long time, seen it as a key part of their competitive advantage. But he also counts InfiniBand DPUs from NVIDIA. And there's a lot of those going out the door. AI is all, you know, flavor of the month, blah, 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 AI infrastructure. You know, everybody wants to get a hold of NVIDIA GPUs and all that sort of stuff. And most of them today are using InfiniBand from NVIDIA to be able to do that. So I think it's interesting that from our point of view, when will DPUs evolve evolve to being used in the enterprise? And the first thing that you need is a critical mass of production so that there is a market for manufacturing these so that you can then set the enterprise will get start to pick them up once there's sufficient volume and the pricing has been established. And I think what this research is pointing to is that there is a volume around smart NICs now. It's only going to a handful of customers, but they're buying them in such large volumes that the production price of these must be coming down. And I think that the days of enterprises starting to have DPUs in servers as a default is probably getting closer. Not next year, not the year after, but I'd say 2025, 2026, something like that. Possibly the time frame we start to see DPUs becoming a standard on the motherboard type thing. 
Yeah, and just to clarify, uh, this research report is reporting on merchant-built EPUs and IPUs. So again, uh, from folks like Intel, from AMD, Pensando, it does not include uh, cloud giants like AWS who are building their own DPUs and putting them into their servers. Uh, that's not part of this growth. Mm -hmm. So strictly for merchants, that 25% has got to look good, particularly for Intel, which I'm sure is grasping on any straw can about growth. Except they took that business unit and put it outside, separated it from the company just a few months ago, and they're looking for joint venture partners to get some capital back in so that they can keep their CPUs business ticking over. Yeah. Mm. A couple more stories before we wrap. Uh, some financial results. Juniper Networks has announced their results for the third quarter of 2023. The company had revenues of just under $1.4 billion for the quarter, down 1% year-over-year, and net income of $76 million, down 37% year-over-year. Uh, Enterprise continues to be a strong driver for Juniper CEO Rami Rahim said that the enterprise business accounted for more than 50% of revenue the first time ever in the Juniper's history. Its cloud and service business provider business units are facing, quote, headwinds, unquote. <laughs> yeah, Juniper is being uh, has been affected quite substantially over the last uh, four six quarters by the slowdown in telco spending. For a while there, telcos were expected to increase spending by mega billions. If you had have listened to all the analysts and the, you know predicting the future of telcos would be that there'll be money you know pouring out of an oil well like a gusher kind of thing. But that was all based around the five G and cloud hype where everybody said networking was going to go through a boom and blah blah blah. Of course, that didn't happen. What really happened was that companies like AWS and Google started building out their own networks. They didn't really need other people's. Uh, Metro demand has been modest. Um, certainly, there's been some growth in there. 5G hasn't really blown the top off the mobile co industry. There's just going to be this gradual rollout over the next 20 years, as is normal, as has always happened in telcos. Mm -hmm. And so this leaves the service provider segment underperforming against vendor expectations. If you had, you know, listening to analysts, probably not the greatest thing ever. Uh, but Juniper is certainly talking up its wins in the enterprise for growth. And Bruce, Drew, you can take a brow for predicting that Juniper's turn to the enterprise is going to save them from the telcos going broke. Oh, going, thank you. Turning away. Take that. Yeah. yeah. Cause we did say that. Remember we did actually we say, did. yeah, we've been yeah, talking about that. Yep. Yeah. Juniper's turning to the enterprise and return to the campus um, and to increasingly the WAN. So the SD WAN is going to be a good thing for them because otherwise they'd be in deep trouble because the service provider is turning away from these things. And we've also seen, of course, Broadcom introducing its service provider, uh, Silicon, which is also going to make it harder for them to win business or to grow in the face of increasing numbers of white box or merchant silicon-based routers like service provider routers in the 25 terabit class, which is traditionally where Cisco, Juniper, you know, Nokia, those companies have really had the market to themselves and been able to define the running. There's nowhere else to go. And now all of a sudden Broadcom's gone, here's a chip. Right. Now you got to compete with us. So Yeah. Tough. The question is whether, you know, Juniper, Cisco, and Nokia start to adopt that chip because they have to because customers are demanding. That's going to be interesting to see. Yeah. We'll see how it works out. Yeah. All right. Uh, two more stories before we finish. First, uh, Cisco is partnering with audio company Bang & Olufsen on new wireless earbuds that provide, quote, top quality audio experiences, end quote, with enterprise-grade features that let companies track their earbud inventory via the WebEx control hub, i.e. we don't want you walking off with these expensive earbuds. <laughs> so a quick look at the earbuds. They look like they're just a rebadged uh, BO Play EX product. If you go to the Bang & Olsen website, you can see the exact BO Play EX. They just happen to have a Cisco logo on them. I don't can't see how there'd be any physical differences because WebEx relies on third-party hardware. So it just has to rely on all the standards, right, of the hardware yep. that it's on. Yep. Um, and I'm not sure what software changes would features critical for today's hybrid workforce, including enhanced security and device management for IT teams. And basically, I think that what they're saying is that the WebEx software will track the earbuds somewhere. Like, does the WebEx client register that those fancy earbuds are there? 
Uh, I don't know. What do you do? You think? <laughs> what do you think? I mean, it does sound like uh, it's trying to attract uh, people looking for a high-end audio experience for all of the audio conferencing we're doing these days. But uh, I assume most CEOs and top executives are bringing their own earbuds, so maybe this is more aimed at the sort of oh. But if you're an executive, executive or sales, you don't want to pay. And- you don't want to pay the four hundred bucks for a fancy set of earbuds yourself. You want the company to pay for it, Drake. I, I don't know about that. I think executives yeah. are willing to, you know, get those high-end Apple ones just for the status. They did four hundred bucks to a CEO is nothing. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> not the CEO. It's further down the stack, you know. Right? Whereas now, I mean. it's, it, this is yeah. for the lower tiers of the executive suite yes. who want a little bit of a higher-end treat, and so you know, maybe the company will splash out for them with these earbuds to make them feel special. Oh, and of course, uh, well, hello, Mr. CIO, Senior Architect. Here, have a lovely pair of earbuds for Webex on us and uh, golf on Friday. And could we talk about the purchase order while we're there? You know, exactly. you know what I mean? This is a lost leader. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I do think that there's a little aspect. That's not the only reason. I think there's, and but the way the asset management thing is fairly interesting. So people can't just you can't just give them these quite expensive earbuds when a thirty dollars set of earbuds would do. Right. You, you're going to track the asset at least you're nominally. You can say, you know, it's integrated and we've got an asset management and can write them off as they disappear, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want four hundred dollar yeah. earbuds walking away. No. Maybe All just right. buy the $30 ones. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so, Greg, as we wrap up, uh, you found a story about Intel divesting its optical modules business. Yeah, I don't have much to say here except deep in Intel's uh, analyst questions. There's a section where Pat Gelsinger says, uh, in addition, uh, to in Q3, we made the decision to divest the pluggable module portion of our silicon photonics business. Uh, so da, 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 da. there's not much. It doesn't say anything other than that. They're just divesting it somewhere. Who knows where? Um, and I'm not sure that customers care because they just buy the pluggable modules from wherever they buy them from. Increasingly, people are buying white label just from wherever they want to, and then buying, you know, buying them cheaply and but in bulk, so having spares around the place. But I suspect that brand vendors like Cisco and Juniper care here because they've had a lot of mm-hmm. partnerships with companies like Intel to have you know, certain types of quality or certain reliability or certain manufacturing quality that they might, if they're going to sell them at uh, 20 times the the market price with their brand on them, they might want to do a little bit more to make sure they're better quality or at least nominally better quality than what you might get from a off-the-shelf, you know, retail. Yeah, and I see here from the quote you pulled that uh, this is the 10th business that Intel has uh, exited in the last 2.5 years uh, for a almost $2 billion in annual savings, uh, which Pat Kelsinger is touting as an effort to optimize the portfolio and drive long-term value creation. So uh, cutting yeah, off that's... limbs to, to save some money. Well, it's not so much cutting off limbs. It's the one of the things that Intel was accused of uh, with the previous a CEO was that it was financialized. So one way to keep the hide the the failing capability of a core business is to go and buy others and bolt it on the side, mm-hmm. and that lets you fudge the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so what guys one way to undo that is to say, well, I'll sell all these businesses off, but this also frees up capital for Pat Gelsinger to then say, well, we're going to build new fabs. And mm-hmm. I think you're going to see Intel wants to boost up that fab production industry. Its ability has made made a big deal about the fact that they've gone 4x in the fab production in their uh, financial results. And the only way you're going to be able to fund up four to $10 billion worth of fabs being deployed, aside from going for government handouts in various countries around the world, is also to have your own capital. You still got to bring your own and ditching these businesses that are non-core is probably the way to go about it. Yeah, makes sense. All right, link in the show notes if you want to read up more. That does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation. Again, we're talking with Nokia about the new ChatGPT app available for SR Linux. That's coming right up.
Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast. AI is making its way into network operations, and on today's episode, sponsored by Nokia, we're going to talk about how Nokia has developed a chat GPT-based application that runs on its SR Linux network OS. This means network engineers can use this app to query about network state, ask troubleshooting questions, check configurations, search logs, and quickly sort through reams of documentation. Our guest from Nokia to tell us more is Alan Jarrett, Director, Data Center Switching Business Development. Alan, welcome to the podcast. So before we get into the details, overall, how does Nokia see AI and machine learning impacting network operations? Good question. I would say it's an evolving um, answer as well. In terms of some of the experimentation that we've been doing with chat uh, GPT integration is probably opened up some different uh, types of use cases, uh, different than our perception maybe a year ago. Uh, some of it is related to, well, how chat uh, GPT or generative uh, AI can be used for educational purposes. Uh-huh. In particular, we integrated it with uh, our uh, network operating system, so what we call SR Linux. And, uh, you know, we integrated that and what we see some of the use cases, some of the first use cases are really around uh, uh, learning the system. So being able to interact with the system in a more natural language, not having to uh, uh, know the exact uh, CLI and getting some useful information back on first how to do things on the network operating system. What you're alluding to there is that one of the challenges with switching vendors, because Nokia SL Linux is still new and it has a command line interface, and if your fingers might be used to using another CLI, or even if you're new to networking, mastering that command line interface can take time, right? So if you could reduce that, that would help people get up to speed quicker? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, yeah, multi-vendors or uh, different technologies and how you get up to speed, how you become a power user is the question here. And uh, a lot of times having access to experts is a good way of improving your knowledge and becoming a power user. So you're using chat GPT integration to be like a how do I, I guess what I'm trying to grip here is how does chat GPT do that? Do you sit there and say like, what, what's the command line for this and chat GPT answers? How, what's the shape of that? Yeah, you can exactly ask that type of question. You can ask it how to configure any type of uh, overlay service, whatever task that you have to do right now. If you want to ask mm-hmm. uh, also information that, uh, you know, can access uh, state information and, and logs. So you can ask about the health of uh, BGP peers, for example, right. for example, and it can come back with answers on that. And even, you know, when there are errors there, you can ask, you know, how do I resolve this? How do I, uh, uh, what's a, a resolution to a particular problem? There's a video that you asked me to watch before you started this show. So I, I want to make, so if you want, if people want to see this video, cause I'm going to reference it. But one of the questions I saw you asked there is, are there any drop packets on any interfaces? Now that's literally what you typed. You typed ask AI space, R space there, space any drop. That was all the question that you asked. And it goes off and literally queries all the interfaces, the, I presume the active interfaces in a switch. Actually, respond saying, yes, there are dropped interface pa- uh, packets on some interfaces. Here they are. And it goes out to list the interface, sub-interface, and the number of discarded packets. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. So you could get to uh, that same information mm. uh, using uh, CLI, you know, the show info uh, commands. Mm. But this is a more natural uh, approach and actually enables you to you know, sift through some of the uh, details as, as well and get to the information you're particularly looking for. 
Right. So how do I use this application? We're talking about querying this sort of chat GPT function. Am I popping out of my network management console to, to use this or am I actually in the CLI that I'd be in if I was doing things, you know, with my switches anyway? Yeah, this is uh, an integration right at the uh, switch. So you can also, it's also applicable, you know, for an integration at the network management system. Uh, but this one is is actually using uh, the uh, the network operating system and integration there. So one of the key things about uh, SR Linux is is just its openness and its ability to support uh, DevOps. And so in this case here, what we did, so really as a you know proof of concept experiment, was uh, to take SR Linux, just uh, an, an already released version of it, use the NDK, build a quick uh, application, local app application, we just call it Ask AI, and that uh, calls the, the Open AI uh, uh, APIs. And uh, you can start uh, making uh, uh, questions or sending questions into uh, to chat GPT or to open AI. Key point is, is uh, that uh, just being able to uh, access uh, the uh, log and the uh, uh, state information and be able to do a uh, Mm. Uh, an agent there essentially do that very quickly without uh, you know having to wait for the next release of uh, the software. Okay, and I'm doing this right in the CLI then. Yeah, in this case you're doing it uh, right in the CLI. So it's uh, just another CLI prompt to ask mm -hmm. AI, and then you can carry on with uh, a question that uh, that you can uh, send to uh, Chat uh, GPT. So effectively, you're using the chat GPT, the large language model, to, to create the show commands or the query commands that you would normally type. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And would this just work on that specific switch that I'm in, or can it tell me information about you know all the switches that I've got in my data center, for example? Uh, well, this one in particular, because it's uh, an integration at uh, SR Linux at the network operating system, it's really telling you about its view of the world. So okay. it can tell you about its pairing systems and the health of those, but really from that perspective. The next part of this is, of course, uh, being able to do it at the uh, an integration uh, network-wide as, as well. So that's, but th at this point, uh, it's uh, for, for this stage, it's at the uh, SR Linux. Okay, but that's still, I guess, a pretty powerful tool because if I do need to get information about a specific device and the other devices it can see or it's supposed to be connected to, I can go to that device and actually just start typing in plain language queries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're still going to have, uh, you know, there's still going to be operators that go to CLI and have to do particular functions. And so long as that's uh, still there, which uh, which uh, the, it will be, mm -hmm. uh, then this has uh, utility for that. Okay. Uh, and so we, I think you mentioned logs. Uh, what other kinds of data is it ingesting and, and where is it getting it from? Directly from the, the NAS? Yeah, directly from the NAS. It's able to fetch uh, state information. And by state information, so any of the, uh, and like I said earlier, about any of the operational measurements and about status of uh, any of uh, the objects, so interface status, drop packets, and all the logging information is mm. available. And of course, it has, uh, you know, we trained it the user guides and troubleshooting guides. So we've trained it with that information as well. You mean Nokia's own documentation on, on its own uh, products? Yep, correct. Okay, so if I wanted to get sort of an example config, I could just ask it to go fetch it and it will print it out for me essentially in the window? Yeah, it's uh, so one of the use cases is really just asking it how to... Uh, 
you know, configure a Mac uh, VRF, you know, you can search through the user documentation and, and find the answer and, and configuration examples for that. But this does it for you. Okay, so that would save a lot of time, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, and also, uh, you know, one of the the first uh, ways, like I said, for education. So you can just put this into a, a lab as as well, and with that, you can start uh, doing your your own experimentation and and start learning how to well interact with ChatGPT, but also it'll provide you with uh, yeah, here's uh, uh, guidelines for configuring the device using the the CLI. So do I need to learn like any specialized terms or queries to get information out of it? Or can I just, you know, do colloquial things like, you know, is this interface up or down? What's the health of this system, et cetera? Exactly. You don't have to learn the terminology. It may not, you know, it's, it's an alternative to, to knowing the details of the CLI. So you can use uh, your own natural language there and it'll uh, infer what uh, what you're looking for. Sometimes you will get uh, different uh, results. We've seen that, and uh, and with uh, you know more training that we're doing it on more usage, we expect the answers to get uh, uh, refined and get better. But uh, in some of the in the demo, you'll see in in some cases uh, the uh, Ask AI comes back with uh, answers that are not uh, that uh, satisfying. In some cases, and say <laughs> not sure what the answer is, hmm. which is kind of interesting. But if you ask it again, it comes back with a more specific uh, uh, answer. Okay, so this is maybe where we're getting that term. I'm hearing sort of bubble up like query engineering, where folks have to sort of. You know, in general, you can use sort of colloquial languages. Sometimes one way, to, a, a different phrase will produce a different result, a result that may be more accurate or satisfying. Yes, correct. Okay. Mm. You do have to master the concept of an AI prompt. So you, you ask questions, but sometimes asking questions in a different way. It's not dissimilar to talking to people in person. Sometimes right. you can ask a person. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just you can't just say sudo and then type the command on people all the time. Sometimes you have to ask the question the right way to get a valid answer. If that if that makes sense. Yes, that is true. And sometimes yeah. uh, you know, there's also the context of the conversation as well. In some of the experimentation that you do with it, and even in the recorded demo. You'll see that uh, sometimes it wasn't always alignment with uh, what the context was. Yeah, you may be thinking you're talking about a specific interface, but uh, Chat GPT has a slightly different context. So it does take uh, some uh, trial and error to refine that as well. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, one thing that makes me feel better is one of the main sources that it's uh, getting information from is Nokia's own documentation, where presumably that's a reliable source. So. I'm guessing issues around, you know, we're hearing things like AI hallucinations probably aren't that much of an issue with this because you're, we're working from a very limited data set, right? That's right. You're working from, yeah, here's the user documentation. So a trusted set there. Now uh -huh. we've also been, uh, you know, some of the team has, has been going through different, through different uh, questions and also waiting the answers. So they're they're also improving the, uh, okay. the training of the chat GPT. Okay, so that's, I guess, another important point then is that this is coming to me as an end user with some training in place already. It's not just going to have to sort of, I'm not starting from scratch with it. That's correct. So you mentioned making open API calls to chat GPT. Does this mean, uh, do I need an instance of open AI running in my data center or is this sending calls out to the internet? What, how does, how is it all fitting together? Yeah, it's actually using the open AI uh, API. So it is making there's a connectivity there between uh, essentially on the management network. Mm -hmm. uh, it needs to have reachability to the internet and to uh, open AI. 
That's good to know. Mm. There's going to be some conversations around that uh, as well. Some of it into a production network, but uh, you know, the first uh, deployment um, or the first uh, experimentation with this is going to be into uh, labs. Yeah. Okay. And again, this is something that I can just download and install onto SR Linux. Correct. It's a uh, essentially it's an add-on application. It's an open community-based uh, application. Uh, we'll put something in the uh, footnotes, a, a link to where you can get some more information to, where you can actually get the application and install it onto uh, SR Linux uh, deployment. Is this a licensed product at the moment or something else? No, we have like a library of different uh, NDKs uh, that are just generally available. So there's no uh, license. It's uh, free to use. Okay. We probably should have said this at the beginning, but what is the application called? You know, in the CLI, we call it Ask AI, but we also call it uh, SRL, which is uh, SR, SRL or SR Linux uh, GPT. Okay. okay. <laughs> yep. Got to get the GPT in there because that's, that's, that's all the fashion. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and is it currently available? Yes, it is. And we'll put a link uh, on your webpage to uh, where you can find uh, the actual uh, uh, application. Yeah. And uh, Greg, you referenced that Nokia has put together a demo video of this. And also um, Nokia has partnered with Packet Pushers on what we call a Demo Bytes video that'll be up uh, on the Packet Pushers YouTube channel where uh, Ethan Banks is interviewing uh, Erwan James from Nokia, where they actually walk through a session using Ask AI. So if you want to see it in action for yourself, I'd, I'd recommend go looking at that. And we'll have those links in the show notes as well. Yeah. I think it's super interesting in the sense that if you wanted to understand, this is a sort of a proof of concept, I think, showing what an LLM AI, what AI LLM, large language models, natural query languages can do in the context of networking. I, I'm i not necessarily sure that Alan would tell you that everybody should have it and be able to run it, but this might be a proof of concept that'll set you thinking about how you could use this in your network. And at the very least, you should go and look at it and think about how this is relevant to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would agree with that. And, you know, like I said, uh, one of the first uh, use cases, a little, probably a little bit different than what people imagine for uh, AI. And this is more like having a super user, an expert uh, readily available for you. You can ask questions without uh, knowing the specific uh, syntax. Uh -huh. yeah. And uh, it can come back with some uh, some good answers. And they're always on call. You don't have to worry about waking them up at 2 a.m. and ask a question. <laughs> Yes. I can see some IT managers typing their commands in and thinking that they know, know how to do networking. <laughs> <laughs> they probably won't know how to interpret the responses, but at least they'll be able to type in some commands and convince themselves they've still got it. All right. Well, we've uh, run out of time for this episode, but if uh, people are curious about this tool, Alan, where should they go? Yeah, there's a couple of uh, online resources for it. First, you can go to the Nokia Enterprise Cloud Networking webpage. And then for more uh, detailed technical information, you can always go to the Learn SR Linux uh, webpage, and that'll have the uh, specifics on how to install the application, get it up and uh, up and running. And uh, I look forward to uh, people's uh, comments back on uh, their uh, experimentation with this. All right. Fantastic. We'll also have all those links in the show notes that accompany this podcast, plus many more. Uh, thank you, Alan, for joining us. And thanks to Nokia for being a sponsor. As always, we appreciate you, the listener, for giving us your time and attention. If you found this episode interesting or helpful, we've got a ton of other nerdy technical podcasts, all available for free at packofpushers.net. You can also check out what we're doing on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and if you would, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.